The reading this morning is taken from Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 3. We begin at verse 4b through to verse 16, and that can be found on page 1180 of the Pew Bibles. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining forward for what is ahead. I press onward toward the goal to win the prize for which Christ has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, my name is Ben. I'm one of the ministers here. Uh, and as we begin, let me pray. Father God, open our eyes that we may see wonderful things in your word. And we ask that for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, with the Commonwealth Games uh, drawing to a close today, I'm sure many of us uh, would have seen some cycling races uh, where the competitors were trying to cycle very, very fast. Uh, what you might not have seen were cycle races where the competitors were trying to race very, very slow. Actually, uh, around the world, there are some events uh, where the goal of the race uh, is to actually finish last. And the rules are you're not allowed to put your feet down, you're not allowed to go backwards. Uh, and you have to come across the line last. So here's one example of uh, this event in California. Anyway, there we go. So it's very, very tricky, very difficult, uh, and requires a lot of balance. Now, could you imagine uh, if you rocked up to this event 
and no one told you uh, what the aim was, right? So you'd probably rock up in your Lycra with, you know, your $6,000 carbon fiber bike. Uh, you know, you'd all be pumped up on caffeine uh, and you'd think, all right, I'm going to go for it. When the gun goes off, you pump your legs uh, and then you just absolutely smash the competition. You get to the end, you know, you're high-fiving all your buddies uh, and then you think you're the biggest winner until, of course, the, uh, the judge comes up and awkwardly tells you, in fact, you're the biggest loser. So... <sighs> Knowing the goal of something completely changes the way you approach it. And it's the same in life, isn't it? When you know the goal of life, when you know what's most important, it's going to completely shape your priorities. It's going to completely shape what you value and indeed uh, how you live. So as Andrew's already said, um, we're in the middle of a series on transformed lives. And today we're looking at one guy whose life was particularly uh, transformed by the Lord Jesus And um, his name is Paul, and he met Jesus on the road to Damascus about 30 years before this letter, uh, that Paul wrote this letter to his friends in Philippi. And um, why that's so fascinating, it's not an instantaneous transformation like we see with other people, the woman at the well, Zacchaeus, and so on. Uh, This is a testimony of a transformed life that's taken place over 30 years. Uh, So he's not just speaking out of naive optimism, he's speaking out of decades of Christian wisdom and Christian experience. So he's most definitely worth listening to. And what we see about um, the transformed life, a life transformed by the Lord Jesus, are three things from the Apostle Paul. First of all, consider your achievements as loss. Secondly, trust in Christ alone. And thirdly, value Christ above all. What does a transformed life look like? You consider your achievements as loss, you trust in Christ alone, and you value Christ above all. So let's have a look at them uh, in turn. So first of all, consider your achievements as loss. Now, many people think uh, that people become Christians um, as a bit of a crutch, right? They think, man, oh, you know, it's only people who are kind of losing in life that become Christians. It's only people who have no hope. But that's certainly not the case uh, with many Christians. It's certainly not the case uh, with Paul. When Paul became a Christian, at that moment in his life, he was an absolute winner, as it were, in the eyes of those around him, according to the rules of his culture. Have a look with me uh, at verse 4b. Paul says this. By the way, if you've lost the page, we're on page 1180. Philippians 3, verse 4b. If someone else thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh... I have more. So Paul here is talking about confidence, all right? Now, we might talk about that in terms of bragging rights. We might talk about that in terms of um, the fact that he was widely respected and accepted by his culture. In other words, his life was something that he, others in his culture looked up to and esteemed. Why is that? Well, first of all, he came from the right family. Look with me at verse 5. He says, circumcised on the eighth day. Now, circumcision was a mark of belonging uh, to God's covenant people. So God's saying um, that he wasn't, uh, sorry, rather Paul's saying that he wasn't a late convert. You know, it's kind of like those hipsters who say, you know, I was um, drinking kombucha and eating kale before it was cool. Uh, You know, he's saying, I was a Jew from the beginning. And look at verse 5 again. He says he wasn't a Gentile convert like many of the church uh, in Philippi was. He was an ethnic Jew. And indeed, he was of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin, of course, was the greatest tribe, uh, that's without doubt. Uh, and that's in part because um, it, was the, um, it was the tribe from which Saul, the first king, came. 
Uh, but not only that, uh, it was where the capital of Israel uh, was located, Jerusalem, in the land of Benjamin. So to sum up, Paul says he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, verse 5. In other words, he had confidence in the flesh because he came from the right family. But not only that, he had confidence in the flesh uh, because he had the right achievements. Look with me at the end of verse 5. He says, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. Now, of course, uh, when we read through the Gospels, we think uh, Pharisees, oh, boo, you know, they're the kind of the bad guys in the story. But in Paul's day, Pharisees were the ones who were most esteemed. They were rigorous uh, in obeying the law, and that was valued, and so they were held in high regard and sat, you know, in the, the, the head seats of feasts and were, you know, greeted in the marketplaces and that sort of thing. So verse 6, uh, not only that, Paul says he was such a zealous Pharisee, he even persecuted the early church. He went from house to house and city to city, trying to throw Christians in jail. So much was he threatened, uh, so much was his religion and his way of life threatened by uh, the gospel of the early church. He tried to either have them thrown in jail or killed. So verse 6, Paul says, um, he continues, as for righteousness based on the law, compared to others, he was faultless. So he had confidence. He boasted because he was from the right family and because he had the right achievements. If you like, he had the perfect resume. Now, I'm going to try to translate this uh, into today's cultural standards, uh, cultural rules, if you like, of what we esteem. Uh, So I want to try to give you Paul's resume in, in modern terms. It might look like this. Born of the family of Murdoch. Educated at Shaw. Captain of debating. Captain of the first 15. Stroke of the first eight, first violin in the orchestra, and of course, school captain. As for my tertiary study, first class honours in economics and law at Sydney University. As for my postgrad study, PhD from Oxford, Rhodes Scholar. As for my current employment, managing partner at Allen's. As for serving my community on the board of several big charities. As for housing, five bedroom house with views in Manly. As for serving my local church, a warden. All right, so this guy, by any measure, in his day, his resume was extremely impressive, right? His mother would have been very proud uh, of Paul. But did you notice, how does Paul think about his achievements after he'd become a Christian? Verse 7, he says, But whatever gains to me, I now consider loss. For the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage. (laughs) So Paul considers his great, his awesome resume um, and his awesome achievements as loss. He says he calls them garbage. Now, by the way, that, uh, that word literally means excrement, right? Refuse. It was. You know, Paul's saying, in the world's eyes, my achievements were a hit, uh, but in my eyes, after coming to Christ, my achievements are what you throw down the toilet, all right? So he's saying when he became a Christian, he came to realize that all the things he was working so hard to achieve, all those things that the world highly valued, they were not only worthless, they were actually a loss to him. Now, why would Paul say that? Well, the key is, I think, in this passage... There's a word righteousness. That's the key to unlocking this passage, I think. Verse 9, Paul says, He came to realize that he did not have a righteousness of his own. In fact, he's saying he could not have a righteousness of his own that comes from the law. 
And that word righteousness basically means to live up to God's expectations. Uh, when I was a lawyer, um, when it came time for performance reviews, uh, there was this phrase that they used, and it ran like this, meet expectations. All right, so all of us were working so hard, we were slaving, we were pumping out documents, meeting with clients, so at the very least, our boss would come to us every year and say, you met expectations. All right, what they're really saying is, you're good enough to work here. You're worthy to remain. And that's what Paul was striving for. He was striving for righteousness. He was laboring so that one day God would say over his life, you're righteous, you're good enough, you've met my expectations, you're worthy to come into my presence. But of course, Paul's whole goal, his whole life's ambition was absolutely shattered 30 years before he wrote this letter on the road to Damascus, when in fact he did come face to face with the great God of glory in the person of Jesus Christ. But it wasn't a pleasant experience. He falls to the ground, right? He goes blind. And uh, it's reminiscent of when Isaiah comes into the temple in Isaiah chapter 6, and he says, woe is me when he sees the glory of God. Woe is me, for I am ruined. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And Paul knows right then and there, I think, that all his righteous deeds were worthless. The God who had seemed far away to him had in fact come near. And despite being blind, Paul suddenly saw that he could not live up to God's standards. He could never be worthy. And as Paul later says uh, in his letter to the church in Rome, he says, there is no one righteous, not even one. He says, for all fall short of the glory of God, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Friends, do you know what this means for us? If not even Paul, the faultless Pharisee, as it were, is able to be good enough for God, then apart from Christ, none of our, even our best deeds are going to be good enough for God. Like Paul, we need to consider our achievements as loss. Now, of course, that doesn't mean we need to uh, strive to obey God, uh, nor does it mean we should stop trying to achieve things for His glory. But what treating our achievements as lost means is that we need to stop placing our confidence in our achievements. It means uh, we need to stop thinking that our good deeds make us better than anyone else. It means we need to stop thinking that our good deeds earn us any merit with God. So that's point number one. We need to consider our achievements as loss. Why? because they prevent us from trusting in Christ alone. And that's going to be point number two. And because they distract us from valuing Christ above all. And that's point number three. We need to consider our achievements as loss. Point number one. So now point number two, we need to trust in Christ alone. Now, if Christ is so perfect, um, if His glory threatens, as it were, our sense of self-worth and exposes that our righteous deeds are worthless then you'd think that Paul would want to flee from Christ. But what does he say? He says, no, in fact, I want to be found in him. Look again at verses 8 and 9. He says, he says, I consider everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. What Paul is saying is that uh, if you consider your achievements as having any merit before God, if you consider your righteous deeds as gain, then you cannot gain Christ. 
you have no part in him. If you try to add to Christ's finished work, then you lose it all. And it's a little bit like, um, imagine you're in a boat, a little dinghy, uh, in a storm on the sea. And your boat's been taking on waves. And it's swamped and it's about to sink. And then all of a sudden, this rescue boat comes out of nowhere. And they say, come on board. All right? And you've got to, at that point, you've got a decision to make. Right? Either you stay in your dinghy, which is sinking, or you get on board the rescue boat, all of yourself, and you are taken away to safety. What you can't do is have one foot in the dinghy and one foot in the rescue boat. Because do you know what's going to happen? When the dinghy sinks, you're going to topple over and you're going to sink with it. And that's Paul's understanding of salvation. He says there's no middle position. Verse 9, he says, Either you try to achieve a righteousness of your own that comes from the law, and he personally found that that is impossible, or you receive a righteousness that comes from God, which is entirely through faith in Christ. If you want to be saved, in other words, uh, you have to come to God with nothing. In the words of the hymn, Rock of Ages, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling, naked come to you for dress, helpless look to you for grace, stained by sin to you I cry, wash me saviour, or I die. Right? Do you see what Paul is saying here in this passage? He's saying, if you trust in Christ, if you consider Jesus uh, your Lord and Saviour, then you will be washed, then you will be saved, then God will consider you as righteous as His Son. In other words, if you are found in Christ, it is, in the words of Galatians, uh, to be clothed with Christ. As Paul says elsewhere, all of you who were baptised into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. So, the other day, um, just before Easter, Naomi, the children's and families minister here, uh, roped me into doing a scripture assembly, and I played the part of this guy, Super Dude is what I call myself, and um, I wore this outfit, and I told the kids that I am strong of arm and strong of leg and strong of stomach. All right, and then we did a whole bunch of uh, little, you know, challenges where um, I let the kids beat me and show actually I wasn't much of a superhero after all. Naomi disputes that I let the kids beat me, but uh, that's a story I'm sticking to, so let's, uh, let's just run with that. And um, when I actually got changed back out of my clothes uh, and I was just walking out of the assembly, some of the kids who were still there were like, oh, there's, you know, there's super dude. There's, they're, you know, kind of like trying to get my attention and say cheeky stuff to me. And, um, and it was then that I suddenly realized when I was wearing this suit, the kids didn't see me as Benadamo. They were seeing the person that I'd made up. They, they were seeing the person in whose clothes, as it were, I was clothed. And I think that's actually how God sees us when we come to Christ by faith, when we're found in Him. If you trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior, God sees you now as though you're clothed in all of His righteousness. If you receive Christ by faith, God erases all of your unrighteous deeds. Right? We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God wipes the sake clean because Jesus Christ paid the price that all your evil deeds deserve. He paid them in full on the cross. But not only that, if you receive Christ by faith, 
then you get all of Christ's righteousness, right? You get his resume, as it were, on the top of, um, he scratches out your bad resume and he gives you Christ, and next to Christ's name, he writes your name too. And God sees it and he accepts you and he counts you as worthy on that basis. Just as this, when Jesus Christ was baptized, he came up out of the Jordan River and a voice was heard from heaven saying, this is my son whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. And if you receive Christ by faith, then these words apply to you too. God says this about you. This is my son. This is my daughter whom I love. With you, I'm well pleased. And friends, when you understand this, when you really let this go down deep, then you'll never be anxious about your achievements again. You won't feel superior to others when you do things well because ultimately your righteousness is not your own. And likewise, you won't feel inferior to others because even if you fail, God will not love you any less because he cannot love you any more than he does right now. So do you see, that's what Paul means by considering your achievements as loss and being found in Christ. It means don't invest your sense of self-worth in anything other than Christ because without Christ, you'll never be enough. But with Christ, you can finally seek success simply for the sheer pleasure of honoring God through it. One of my favorite examples of this, what we've been talking about, uh, is from the movie Chariots of Fire. Chariots of Fire, I'm sure most of us have seen it. Uh, It's a movie really of two stories, two contrasting stories. One uh, on the left, Harold Abrahams, uh, who's not a Christian, and the other on the right, Eric Little who is. That's what they look like in real life, by the way. Now, the movie's set uh, during the 1924 Summer Olympics in Paris, and everyone's uh, kind of, at least in the movie, they're expecting this big showdown between Little and Abrams and uh, in the 100-meter sprint. But of course, sorry, spoiler alert, it's too late, it's been out for ages, you should know, you should have seen it by now. But uh, Little, Little finds out that um, the 100-meter heat is going to be run on a Sunday, so he pulls out out of obedience uh, for him to God's Sabbath command. However, he does decide to compete in the 400-meter sprint. So the movie sets up this profound contrast. On the one hand, before Abraham's race, he tells his friend he's scared. Right? This great athlete, he says, I'm scared. He says, I'm 24, and I've never known contentment. He says, I'm forever in pursuit, and I don't even know what it is that I'm chasing In one hour's time, he says, I'll raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide with 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? All right, do you see what's driving him? He doesn't know that he is accepted. Now, of course, Abraham's goes on to win gold. But what I just was watching it recently, um, what I think we see in the movie is that Abraham still doesn't find contentment, even after he's won 100 meter gold in the Olympics. I think the director wants us to show that gold is not enough, even for him. And the way, the way it's communicated is they do this cutscene to Abraham while he's watching Little's race uh, in the 400 meter uh, race. And there is on the scene, I'm interpreting that, you see him as having this look of disbelief, this sort of shocked awe. Because what he sees is a thing of beauty. Against all the odds, Liddell wins. But the best thing about that scene is that on the last stretch, 
uh, of, the, of the track, uh, you see this audio flashback, or you hear this audio flashback of the time Liddell tells his sister. He says, I believe that God made me for a purpose, and that is to be a missionary in China. He says, but he also made me fast, and when I run, I feel God's pleasure. To win, he says, is to honor him. Do you see, like Abraham, unlike Abraham's, Little doesn't have to justify his existence because he believes that God has already done that in the person of Christ. And Liddell has come to trust that he has received the righteousness of Christ through faith. And so because of that, he's set free from anxiety. He's running simply for the pleasure of honoring God. And in that final scene, Abraham looks on in stunned silence, seemingly awed by Liddell's obvious display of contentment. Because in the final stretch, Liddell sort of tilts his head back and opens his mouth because he's not just running, he's worshipping. You see, that kind of contentment flows only from a heart which puts no confidence in the flesh, but trusts in Christ alone. That's point number two, trust in Christ alone. Point number three, value Christ above all. Just think back to that bicycle race, right, where you've got to figure out what is the goal of all this What's the goal of Paul's life in this passage? What's the most important thing? Well, have a look with me at verse 8. Paul says, it's the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. He says, it's gaining Christ. Verse 9, he says, it's being found in Christ. Verse 10, Paul says, he wants to know Christ. Paul isn't distracted by the things of the world, is he? His heart is undivided. You see, Christ is the center of his mind's attention and Christ is the object of his heart's affection. Verse 12, we must note, says this, I haven't already obtained all this. He doesn't know Christ fully. He's not there yet. But his whole life revolves around this single goal. He presses on to take hold of that for which Christ has taken hold of me. Verse 13, Paul says he forgets what's behind. He forgets his achievements of the past. You know, some of us are resting on our past achievements of trying to live in the past. Paul says, forget that. Strain towards what's ahead. Don't let your mistakes of the past drag you down. Press on. Focus on what's in front. Remember what Christ has done for you. Focus on what's ahead. Verse 14, he presses on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So why does Paul value Christ above all else? Well, it's obvious, isn't it? He's crazy in love with Jesus. When you're in love with someone, when you are, you know, when you, you know, you want to know everything about them. Um, When their loveliness and their beauty of their character draws you to them, you just want to spend all your time with them. See, Paul doesn't just want to know about Christ. Uh, One of my uh, favorite actors is uh, Hugh Jackman, among other reasons, is because he can grow a dominant beard, can't he? I love it. Uh, You know, Wolverine and all the rest. I think he's great. So I I know a fair bit about him. I know a bit about him, but I don't know him because I've never spent time with him. In contrast, Paul doesn't just want to know about Christ. He wants to know Christ personally and intimately. He wants to walk with him. He wants to spend time with him. And he wants to become more like him. So the key question is, how do we actually do this? How do we actually go about knowing Christ uh, deeper, more personally, more intimately? Well, first of all, of course, 
you've got to read your Bible, right? It sounds sort of so basic that we um, almost neglect to do this sometimes. But the Bible, you see, is not just information about God. You see, it's his main means of communication. Communication means sharing. And as we all know, it's the bedrock of relationships when we share with one another. So the Bible is the main way that God shares his heart and mind with us. Or in other words, it's through the Bible that God speaks, right? God illuminates his words and he makes them real in our hearts by his Holy Spirit as we read the Bible. So if you want to know Christ personally, intimately, you have to read the Bible. And I would say not just hearing uh, someone read the Bible from the front and and me sort of sharing what God's been teaching me. Uh, You actually have to read the Bible for yourself at home and, and, and listen to what God would have you learn from him. Secondly, if you want to know Christ uh, personally and intimately, you have to pray. Uh, If the Bible is the way that God shares his heart and mind with us, then prayer is the way that we share our heart and mind with him. So there are two ways we can know God uh, more deeply, reading the Bible and prayer. But have a look at verse 10. Paul's even more specific. He says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. So thirdly, if you want to know Christ uh, more deeply, you have to be conformed to Christ's character. When you're crazy in love with someone, and when you spend lots of time with them, when you admire them, you begin to love what they love, don't you? You begin to hate what they hate. You begin to sort of pick up their little habits, and you begin to adopt and imitate their traits. It's the same with knowing Christ. In verse 10, Paul says, I want to know the power of Christ's resurrection. I think he's talking there about knowing and experiencing the life of the resurrected Christ at work in him by his Holy Spirit to make him more like Jesus. It's the same idea in John 15 where um, Jesus talks about, you are the branches, I'm the vine, abide in me. Um, If we are connected to Christ, we have his life in us. In other words, Christ's resurrected life in us is like water in a hose. You know, you turn on the tap and it just pumps through and it can't help but um, spray, new, uh, spray water into the garden. Christ in us is like a spring and it pours out in Christ-like words and actions. So that's a third means. If you want to know Christ, you have to be conformed to his character. And of course, that means you have to obey his word. But fourthly, you have to be willing to suffer for Christ's cause. Jesus says, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Paul likewise says that everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So when Paul says that he wants to become like Christ in his death, I believe he's talking um, that he wants not only to suffer for Christ, but he wants to suffer like Christ. Because when we suffer for Christ and like Christ, we suffer with Christ. And it's through these trials that Christ refines us and he reforms us to become more like him. So in sum, if you want to know Christ more deeply, you have to read your Bible, you have to pray, you have to be conformed to Christ's character and obey his word. And you have to be willing to suffer for Christ's cause. But as we, uh, as, before we close, I want to um, end with a story that sort of draws together these threads. There was a guy called John Gibson Patton, 
He was a Presbyterian minister who lived from 1824 to 1907. Uh, and for 10 years, he served as a successful uh, urban missionary in Glasgow. Of course, I, uh, I like this guy again because he's got an amazing beard and uh, what a guy. But he felt his call to be a missionary in the South Pacific and he was advised that he was needlessly throwing away a good ministry. Nonetheless, he was also told uh, that you're going to be eaten by cannibals. Nonetheless, he answered the call and in April 1824 he set sail for the New Hebrides, which of course is now Vanuatu. And uh, he left with his wife Mary, to whom he'd then been married 14 days. How about that? So together they arrived in New Hebrides in November 1858 and they built a house. In February 1859, Mary gave birth to a son, Peter. But within just a few weeks, both Mary and Peter had died of fever. And John spent his nights sleeping on their graves uh, to protect uh, their bodies from being dug up by the local cannibals. And so for years, Patton laboured among the indigenous population, even though his life was in constant danger. He writes in his autobiography that his house was constantly surrounded by angry locals. He says one time there was this wild chief following him around with a loaded musket directed at his body. He says there were often axes raised above his head ready to strike, daggers drawn to his heart ready to be plunged. And yet God, he says, restrained the hands of those who opposed him. After several years, he returned to Scotland, uh, and in 1864, he married his second wife, Maggie, and together they returned to the New Hebrides uh, in 1866. And there they served together, and there they suffered together, uh, and they had 10 kids, four of whom died in infancy or in early childhood. Despite all their struggles, well, perhaps because of their struggles, In 1887, Patton wrote that through their ministry efforts, around 12,000 cannibals had been brought to sit at the feet of Christ. Now, I dare say in the eyes of the world, John Patton and his two successive wives lived a pitiable life. But Patton saw it otherwise. In his autobiography, he wrote this. He says, I pity, he says, I pity from the depth of my heart every human being who, from whatever cause, is a stranger to the most ennobling, the most uplifting, the most consoling experience that can come to the soul of a person, blessed communion with the Father of our spirits through gracious union with our Lord Jesus Christ. And to explain what he means, Patton shares a story of a time when um, He was being uh, chased by angry natives who were trying to kill him. Some of his indigenous friends, uh, whose loyalty was doubtful, told him to climb up a tree to safety. That's a bit of a crazy scene. It's a bit of a comical scene for some. Uh, this, this, This old guy with this great big beard, you know, this missionary, being chased around by these wild cannibals, climbing up a tree like a cat. And yet he doesn't, right? And here's what he writes. He says... Being entirely at the mercy of such doubtful and vacillating friends, I, though perplexed, felt obliged to obey. I climbed into the tree and was left there alone in the bush. The hours I spent there live all before me, as if it were but of yesterday. I heard the frequent discharges of muskets and the yells of the savages. 
Yet I sat there among the branches as safe as in the arms of Jesus. Never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly into my soul than when the moonlight flickered among those chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow as I told all my heart to Jesus. Alone, yet not alone. And he ends, If it be to glorify my God, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree to fill my Saviour's spiritual presence, to enjoy his consoling fellowship. Friends, I wonder, do you know this kind of fellowship with the Lord Jesus? Because I think this is exactly what Paul means when he says that he wants to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of participating in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to the, attaining to the resurrection from the dead. And he adds in verse 14, all, 15, sorry, all of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. If you want to see your life transformed by Jesus like Paul, then you've got to learn from Paul. You've got to consider your achievements as loss. You've got to trust in Christ alone. And you've got to value Christ above all. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that you would help us to consider even our best deeds as rubbish compared to knowing the surpassing worth of Christ as our Lord and Saviour. Help us to trust in him alone and help us to value him above all that we might bring you great honour and glory in how we spend our lives in your service. For we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.